rose. Just think, if God had not arisen, if Jesus hadn't risen from the grave, we wouldn't be here today and we'd have no hope. The other reading of the same passage is from Luke 24, 1 through 12. And I'm going to invite those who are willing to arise now for the reading of God's word. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find a body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. I can't imagine how you could do that. But they were able, and maybe we should be doing the same. Why do you look for the living among the dead? They said, he is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man will be delivered over to the hands of sinners. He'll be tortured and crucified. And on the third day, be raised again. Then they remembered the words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But the apostles, like us being a little dull, didn't believe the women because the words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. This is indeed God's word. Please be seated. Definitely on. All right. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Welcome. Happy Easter. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about this wonderful day and what it means. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your son died on the cross and rose again for us. And we thank you that we get that account today so that we can celebrate in the wonderful majesty of your gospel. We ask that you open up your word today to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a special day and I tried to prepare a special message for it, so I hope you'll come with me. I was there the day the emperor killed Jesus sure he never started a riot himself and the mob in Jerusalem wanted him dead just because he wasn't the king they were looking for. 
But he was a man calling himself the Son of God, who fulfilled all the prophecies that we had about him, and who extended this bottomless kindness to Jews and Gentiles alike. That's the kind of man that people in power don't want to compete against. That's the kind of man people might actually be able to follow and believe in and not just fear and idolize. So the Jewish people handed him over to the Romans and the Romans in the name of their Gentile emperor hundreds of miles away nailed him to a cross to die. And I was there to see it happen and I did nothing because I could do nothing. And it was the most painful nothing I ever did. My name is John. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostle, maybe. Last of the twelve. The others are all gone now. The original ones anyway. Now it's just me and the new guys. and It won't be long until it's just them. And that's alright, I guess. I'm probably about ready for a little rest. I've probably lived one of the most interesting and eventful lives that anyone has ever lived. I sat at the foot of the Son of God and heard firsthand the account of the creation of heaven and earth. And I've seen a vision of the end of the same. You can read that one if you like. It's at the back of the book, but let me warn you, it's a doozy. But I started out just like anyone else, trying to find out what I needed to do to be the man I knew I was supposed to be. Now, Galilee wasn't a bad place to grow up, all things considered, but Galilee wasn't what it was supposed to be. Nothing in Israel was. That's something that my brother James seemed to be right about at the time, and he hammered that home to me. And, and that pains me to say, because I'm younger than James by a couple of years, and as any younger brother will tell you, you don't give away free wins when you don't have to. But like any good Jewish family, we had to hike up to Jerusalem for the festivals, and well, Gentiles, they were nothing new to me. They live on the other side of the Galilee. I'm used to seeing them there and out on the water. But, but Roman soldiers stomping around in the temple district in full uniform, lifting up this icon of their foreign emperor. That was hard to swallow. And we, we could celebrate Passover, the, the commemoration of God leaving Egypt behind, leading us out of the slavery in Egypt. And we'd do it knowing that a couple of hundred feet away, there were men with swords who could kill us if we didn't fork over our taxes to the emperor. What amazing advances we'd made in 1,400 years. No one needed to go all the way to Egypt to be a slave anymore. Now under the Roman occupation from Spain to Syria, you could be enslaved in the comfort of your own home at no additional cost. Slaves freed by God, turned away from God, and enslaved again in the land that God had promised for them. I was convinced that if you listened really carefully, you could track down the grave of Moses by the sound of him spinning in it. I tried to make sense of this once. I tried saying to James, maybe it's just God's plan right now for his people to be occupied by the Gentiles. And he turned to me and he said, the people of God are getting kicked around by the people of Rome. 
The nation of God is getting kicked around on the world stage. What plan could God possibly have that makes any sense of this unless it involves fire from heaven falling on those Gentile dogs who track their foreign dust on our holy streets? And that shut me up. And that rattled around in my head for years as I grew, thinking about Moses and the power with which God had delivered our people from Egypt. And the might of Israel as we carved out a homeland of our own for the first time. And about old King David and his line of sons that was supposed to rule forever. Now the throne of David was a footstool for Caesar. And the king curled up on that footstool was a watery-eyed goat named Herod. And he wasn't even Jewish, let alone a son of David. We needed someone to follow who was worth following. Someone who could make us who we knew we were meant to be. And we all wanted that. Maybe the 12 of us more than most. I wonder if that's part of why he chose us. But either way, James and I, we were fishermen by day, but when the baptizer, also called John, no relation, when the baptizer came around talking about repentance and the kingdom of heaven, we were ready to hear that. There were four of us young guys on the boats there, James and I in our father's boat, and Peter and Andrew in theirs. We, we couldn't get away from work most of the time to hear what the baptizer had to say, but Andrew had worked out a kind of part-time discipleship gig, and that worked out pretty well for him. So we learned a lot from what he said. Andrew was a good guy, a little scatterbrained at the time, but when he hooked into an idea, he bit down to the bone and stayed there. Andrew was great. And Peter was... Peter was, Peter was very Peter. He's what you call an acquired taste. Have you ever had one of those friends who will take any opportunity to talk about anything, particularly those topics they clearly know nothing about? Peter did a lot of growing over the time we were to, Peter's fine. Anyway, but Andrew, well he tells this story about, he and one of the other guys when they were talking on taking a lesson from John the baptizer. And, and so this guy walks past them, just strolling by. Son of a tradesman, out for a walk, it's a nice day, who can blame him? And John points at this guy and says, you know who that is? They say, no, who's that? It's the Lamb of God. That guy. Yep, Lamb of God, sent from heaven. Definitely that one. Holy Spirit, permanently indwelling in him. Son of God, actually. I heard God say so. Yesterday, hasn't spoken for 400 years, but yesterday was quite chatty by historical standards. <laughs> Andrew says, that guy, that's the Son of God. He says, yeah, 100%. You should hear Andrew tell it, man. He was a crack up. I miss that man. But Andrew follows him along and he brings him to Peter and well, brings Peter to him. And, and not long after, this, this random passerby who just happened to be the anointed son of God comes to our fishing operation and hops into Andrew and Peter's boat and has them drop their nets after a morning of catching nothing. And of course, you all know how that story goes. They haul in so many fish, they can't get the net up. And when they try and hoist it up, it starts tearing the net apart and the fish are going everywhere and they flag us over and we work like mad to get the catch to the shore. Biggest catch of our lives. But none of us knew what to say because 
This wasn't just a good day at work. There were no fish there before. We checked. This was God doing something in our midst. And we were all speechless. Except Peter, who is never speechless. <laughs> and he said, we were all thinking, you can't be around us, Lord. We're sinners. And Jesus looked over us and said, don't be afraid. Follow me and you'll be fishers of men. And that was it. We'd been waiting for someone to follow who was going to lead us and our people back to become what we were meant to be. And here he was, delivered into our midst with the seal of God. And we followed, and that was that. But you need to understand that we had no idea what we were getting into at the time. We, we thought we were being handpicked as for a special destiny as lieutenants or commanders or something. You know, when David took Jerusalem, he had his mighty men, his superhero warriors with him. And, and every time Jesus left the room, the 12 of us would speculate about what this was going to be and how it would go down, and we could never quite reach a consensus. For a while, it really looked like it was going to be a military thing. I mean, we had Simon the Zealot, and we had Jude, and the other James, little James, Judas, certainly. All these guys were red hot and ready to fight and do some mighty men type military action stuff. Or at least they talk a good... They wanted to kick some Gentile tails and plant the flag of a reborn Israel on the smoking ruins of the Roman garrison. And then Jesus added Matthew to our little band and that caused some friction. Matthew was a tax collector, a collaborator, a bagman for the enemy. And pulling someone that chummy into our inner circle was not exactly the scorched earth campaign we were looking for. I mean, James and I, I mean, my James, cool James, we were hoping for a literal scorched earth campaign, like Sodom and Gomorrah type stuff. Toward the end, when we were heading up to Jerusalem, and we really thought this was it, Jesus wanted us to spend the night on the way in a Samaritan village. And of course, the Samaritans wanted nothing to do with us. Jesus was disappointed, but James and I were pretty excited. I said, should we call down fire from heaven on them, Lord? I was thinking tactically. If the Romans in Jerusalem heard that a town was annihilated by God's fire, well, who was going to stand in their way when we walked in Jerusalem? But the teacher did not like that at all. He said he had, that we had no idea what we were talking about, that he had come to save lives, not to take them. I wasn't quite sure how he intended to throw out the occupiers without taking any lives, but that's why he's the rabbi and I'm just an idiot. I visited that village a few years later, full of people, with brothers and mothers and lives and rich and complex as my own. And if I'd had the power on that walk up to Jerusalem, I would have written them off without ever thinking about them again. I think about that a lot now. Even our mum thought that we were in some kind of glory conquest. At one time, she approached Jesus on our behalf for a favor. Small favor? What's that, he asks. Let my son sit at your left and right hand in your kingdom. Classic mum, by the way. We didn't want to say anything, but she had no compunctions about speaking up. But Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? 
Now, 30 seconds ago, he had told us again that he was going to be crucified, but we still hadn't taken that quite literally. And when he said, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink, he's thinking, cup of the wrath of God. We're thinking, chalice of royal wine in the new kingdom. And it's hard to hear this story now and not think we were ridiculous fools, but because Christ had told us three times that he was going to be taken captive, beaten, and crucified, and raised from the dead. But we didn't know he meant it like that. Was it a metaphor or a parable? Was it a, some kind of lesson? We didn't know. All we knew was that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and that Jesus was the king and that we were along for the ride. So we said, yeah, we can drink the cup. We feel qualified. Jesus said, we drink the cup, all right, but he wasn't at liberty to give away those positions at the right and left hand. They'd been appointed by God. And of course, when the other ten heard that we were jockeying for a promotion, they weren't particularly happy with us, as if any of them were more qualified to leave than James and I. But Jesus says, this business of leaders throwing their weight around, that's what the Romans do. That's not how we do things now. Any of you who wants to lead will lead by serving. Anyone who wants to be first will be a slave to the others. Just as the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that made no sense at the time. But I don't know what he could have said to have gotten it through our thick heads about what was really going to happen. Because the Son of God wasn't going to serve us. That would be ridiculous. He was the king. But what were we going to do? So we just went along with it and assumed he'd explain what he really meant later. That was kind of his style. Say something cryptic and then wait a little and then flip it around until there's an obvious answer and then everyone is amazed. So we carried on to Jerusalem. Because no matter how strange this whole thing was turning out, we knew that Jesus was the one we had to follow. And none of us ever doubted that for a second. Except Judas, of course. That, by the time that uh, Judas turned, we'd all been together for three years. That's a lifetime of eating and drinking and attending temple rituals together. Once Jesus sent us out by twos into the countryside to cast out demons like he showed us. I saw Judas do it. He cast out demons in Jesus' name. He was a lot of things. He hated seeing people suffering under the occupiers. We all did, but the rest of us kind of mellowed out over the three years. Still ready for revolution, but not quite so sure of ourselves. Judas just got impatient and bitter. And he gave up long enough to make the kind of decision you can make in a few minutes and then can never take back. I mean, if anyone was going to sell us out to the the Pharisees and their Roman allies, at the time, you probably would have thought it would be Matthew. He's the one who came from that background, the happiest with the state of the nations. But it kills me to think about it. Not that any of us acted particularly uh, honorably or heroically on the night that Jesus was arrested. Of course... While the rest of us stood around like lemons, Peter got all fired up for about four seconds and took a guy's ear off. 
One of the high priest's servants uh, I, that I'd met before when visiting the high priest's house on one Passover. But Jesus pulled Peter into line and just put that ear right back on. Healed the wound on the spot. I still hadn't made sense of everything at that point, but I was so mad at Jesus for that. Judas turning on us ripped our hearts out, and the fact that the, the temple soldiers, not even the Gentiles, came for the teacher, that was salt in the wound. But he wouldn't even let us have a little part of the revolution that we wanted, not even a little bit, not even an ear's worth of payback. He just said, put that sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So they took him away, and the rest of us just ran. I'm not terribly proud of it, but what we were supposed to do. We didn't want to die. We weren't allowed to fight, and Jesus seemed determined to allow this to follow through to its natural conclusion. And he could have left if he wanted to. I've seen the Lord walk through a crowd of people, all of whom wanted to grab him, and they couldn't lay a hand on him. Satan couldn't get a grip on the Son of Man unless he wanted him to. and He just let them take him away. And the rest of us did nothing. I don't know where the others went during that time. We just scattered. James and I got separated. So much for being able to drink the cup, right? But Peter and I found each other again. We managed to sneak into the, the priests, or to the, the court of the priests when they were interrogating him and and that was hard to watch. I mean, these were the guys who Jesus had been running circles around for the last three years, warning people about their corruption, and now they had him in chains before them. These were bitter old men circling like sharks who smelled blood. But of course, they couldn't kill him because they were toothless sharks. We weren't a free nation. We weren't at liberty to execute our own criminals, whether they were innocent or not. So the priests and the Pharisees and all the Jews of standing dragged Jesus over to the governor's palace in the dead of night and then waited outside. Early in the morning, freezing cold night, and here's this mob of angry old Jewish men refusing to go in to the Gentile palace because it was Passover, you see, and if they'd entered the Gentile's house, they would have become unclean. And you wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want to become accidentally unclean while you were throwing an innocent man to the wolves. You wouldn't want to get unclean while begging the Gentiles to crucify the son of David. That would be wrong. And they did beg. The Gentile Pilate, he was bending over backwards to try and cool the mob's anger and stop it from blowing up in his face. The Romans, they pardon one prisoner every Passover. It's a kind of a peaceful gesture to try and pacify the constant rebellions that were happening. Maybe it could be this king of the Jews. No, the priests and the mob howled until they set an actual murderer free instead, rather than the innocent man. How very forgiving of my countrymen and the Gentiles too. I mean, a zealot who had fought and killed Roman soldiers in a half-baked rebellion walked free while the Son of Man stood innocent in chains. Of course, that's very much the picture of what Jesus was accomplishing, but we couldn't see that at the time. The Gentiles, they took him away, and the next time we saw him, they whipped him half to death. 
They jammed a crown of thorns on his head and given him a, a purple robe like some gruesome cartoon joke of a king painted in blood. This was Jesus who had healed and blessed and fed Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles and only ever made war on blindness and leprosy. And that man stood there drenched in injustice. The day before he was telling us that this, this exactly would happen. They'd be beaten and crucified, but you can't really swallow something like that until you see it happening. And how was he going to be crucified anyway? Jesus wasn't a, a killer or a bandit. The Romans didn't make crosses for wandering healers. But of course now, they just set a murderer free. And it was a perfectly good cross just waiting for someone to hang from it. And no one wanted to let that go to waste. His mother was there, you know, through the whole thing, watching the whole scene while they executed her son. I stayed with her, but honestly, what do you say in a moment like that? I was busy thinking of my own mother, asking Jesus if James and I could sit at his left and right hand in the kingdom, and now here was Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, with a crucified thief at his left hand and a crucified thief at his right. We did have no idea what we were asking for. So I was there the day that the emperor killed Jesus and I did nothing. All this time he'd been telling us exactly that this was going to happen. We always hoped it was some kind of lesson a way of preparing us for the hard work of conquering the promised land for the people. But he meant what he said, all right. He was beaten and crucified and his blood was poured out for the sins of many. And that was the point, after all, to pay the price for sin, to drink the cup of God's wrath, to take the execution meant for the sinner, the baptizer told us long before, he said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. There is a destiny for each of us, but we walk around disappointed and angry with ourselves and everyone for not living up for who we were made to be. You're not who you were made to be. You're not who you were made to be. I'm not who I was made to be. And we had hoped that if we could conquer this little slice of land, it would give us the breathing room to become who God meant us to be, as if that had ever worked out before. But he showed us that the way to become who we were meant to be was different. It was through being a servant, through being ready to suffer, through being the kicked around people of the kicked around kingdom of the kicked around king. The father made it clear through the death of his son that he does not need our help to win a kingdom. We need his help to win life. And if we take his help, we win life that lasts forever. We'd seen him do miracles before. and You never really think a miracle is quite possible until you see it happen. And he'd done healings and even raised a couple of folks from the dead, but 
but he was always there to pray, to lay on hands, to talk to his father or something. But who was going to raise him from the dead? Us? No. That wouldn't work. We only ever had the power that he gave us. And with him gone, we just sat inside and prayed with the doors locked in case the mob came and decided they liked the taste of blood so much they wanted more. And Mary the Magdalene came to Peter and I on the third day. She said that the tomb was open. Someone had, had taken the body out and we ran there at full tilt. And I'm the natural athlete of the pair of us, so I got there first. But I don't know what to tell you. He was gone. The linens that he was wrapped in were left behind. So I knew no one had carried him off. Who would unwrap a body if you were stealing it from a grave? And so neat with the shroud folded up at the head of the tomb, I remember thinking crazily, oh, he's made the bed. His mum will be so pleased. Don't judge me. Nothing like this has ever happened before. <laughs> so we took off to tell the others, apparently too early. After we'd gone, Mary had stayed around trying to pull herself together and the risen Lord appeared to her. And she thought he was the gardener. <laughs> but we were sitting in our little locked room, not knowing what we were supposed to do, when he appeared among us and said, Peace be with you. And I'd never known what peace was until that moment. And over the next week, he came and went, busier than most folks tend to be after their funeral. <laughs> but after the Lord had left us, for a little while, we were so restless and overcome with the lows and the highs of this whole thing that Peter just said, I think I'm going fishing. And that seemed like as good a thing to do as any. So most of us went with them. We're in the boats and Jesus, casual as you like, shows up walking along the shore. Can I just say, for the Son of God, for the most amazing individual ever to walk the earth and the, the axis upon which all history and destiny turns. Jesus has an uncanny ability to remain inconspicuous. And he knows that we haven't recognized it's him yet all the way there on the shore. And so he decides he's going to play with us, I guess, because clearly we haven't had enough emotional turmoil yet. We're all just vibrating with confusion and joy and we haven't fainted yet. So, you know. So he calls out, hey, fellas. You caught anything yet? And we say, no. He says, try out the right side, you'll catch some. Unbelievable catch, so heavy we can't pull it into the boat. And we look at each other, and we all know or suspect what's going on. And even Peter, for once in his life, is so excited he can't find the words. And as the only John in the area, it falls to me to preserve tradition. I say, you know who that is? Where am I, God? Sent from heaven, that one. And I would have kept going, but Peter is in the water and paddling towards the shore right away. And I would have beaten him there, but someone had to help the others haul the fish. <laughs> so I'll call that a draw. 153 fish in the nets, and they didn't tear. So we haul it into shore, and we see that Peter and Jesus are talking by this little fire pit where Jesus is already cooking fish. He didn't even need fish. <laughs> Classic Jesus. Oh, we laughed. 
They're all gone now. Of course, the others. It wasn't long after Jesus had returned to the Father that the world started fighting back against the new kingdom. James, my James, was the first of us to go. King Herod killed him, slain with the sword, but that's getting off pretty easy by our standards. Peter and Andrew both crucified in their time, and none of the others died gently. But James was my brother, and you're never really ready to let someone go. But I know where he's gone, and I know I'll see him again. He died being who he was meant to be, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to the Jews and the Gentiles alike, standing in the face of kings and emperors, and seeing that the petty smallness of nations and rulers for the, the passing human business it is, focusing himself on the kingdom of God. I was there the day that the emperor killed Jesus. I was there the day that Jesus overcame death and sin and rose from the grave. The only one worth living for, worthy enough to follow, and the one who leads us into death and out the other side. Today we remember that everlasting victory. On that day that he opened the kingdom of God and eternal life to all those who would call on his name. May God bless you and your families on this day, brothers and sisters, and may his peace be with you. Now, I, of course, am not actually John the Apostle, but the gospel of Jesus' victory over sin and death has been given in joy to every generation since that first group of apostles to this room full of the latest today. So enjoy for the work that he's done and in celebration of the life that he's won for us, let's pray together. Father God, we worship you today with joy in our hearts. For you have won the victory over sin and death through the work of your son Jesus and through your Holy Spirit, you invite us to join in that victory in that new kingdom. Guide us to be who you meant us to be so that we can live with purpose. Give us the courage to live for your kingdom so that we can be without fear. And remind us every day that there is no king, no cause, no threat, no reward, no emperor, no devil who can take from you the hearts of those whom you have won through the cross. We ask these things in the name of your risen son. Amen.